Linguist, author, and filmmaker Helena Norberg Hodge is a pioneer of the new economy movement and founder of Local Futures. Author of the book and the films, Aged Future, Helena Norberg has spent many years creating an eye opening research around tradition and change in the wilderness of Ladakh, working on the front line within the valley. Empowering and creating setups to empower local economy in the Himalayan peaks, enabling distant cultures to bridge with modern world without sacrificing their social and ecological values. Together with a film of the same title, Ancient Futures has been translated into more than 40 languages and sold over half a million copies. Following her work in the villages of Ladakh and Bhutan, she has augmented the initiation of localization movements on every continent, particularly in South Korea and Japan, and has dedicated her life and works to the research and activism, advocating to preserve and regenerate ancient plants and culture. Like we say in the Himalayas, Jule, dear Lena Dolma, thank you for taking the time and being part of the Possibility Podcast. How have you been? I'm good. Julia, Julia, happy to be here. So we're speaking from Bali. I'm speaking from Bali and Helena right now is in Sydney. How was New Year's and how's everything? How's life right now for you? Yeah, well, I'm actually in Byron Bay. I don't know if you've heard of Byron Bay, which is of course. quite different from Sydney. It's quite a lovely place. That's actually quite a lot like Bali. It looks like Bali. And I'm fine. We're having stormy weather, but quite, quite beautiful. Nevertheless, I have heard so many stories about you from the locals of Ladakh, like you're a living mythology right now in some of the remotest corners of the mountains. How did you first decide to leave the Western world and the idea of the comfortable job and the comfortable world and find your home in the distant mountains of Ladakh? Well, I didn't actually decide to do that. I was living in Paris and quite enjoying it. I was a linguist and I was asked to go as part of the film team to help with the language, to help pick up a little bit of the language so that this anthropological film team could make their documentary about this completely unknown land, Ladakh or Little Tibet. And I thought I was going for six weeks and um, ended up just completely falling in love with the people there. And yeah, it completely changed my life. I ended up staying basically because it was one of the most beautiful places in the world. But the people were also among the happiest that I had ever encountered. And it was also so clearly an opportunity to learn that so much of what's going wrong in the world comes actually from economic growth. Economic growth is actually what is creating poverty. It's what's creating so much suffering. And so I had big lessons in all of that and ended up working to try to find a way in which the Ladakhis might meet the modern world without sort of being destroyed by it. To add some context to our listeners, Ladakh bears some of the harshest climatic conditions at around 10,000 feet above the sea level, with winter peaking up to minus 30 degrees, with very little or no electricity, no departmental stores, no central heating, and at times not even a hotel. 
So I actually did a real primary research and heard local stories about you, maybe rumors, but there are like times when I've heard that sometimes you were even staying in caves in the faraway mountains and they were probably slow lepers chasing you. Is that a true story or is it just something that goes around? And I certainly got lost out in the mountains. I did uh, spend a whole night out in the wild mountains having trekked, you know, to a long, long distance through the area. And it was really for so many Westerners, it was just a delight. You know, we had already lived enough in the cities to develop this love for nature, develop a love for walking, using our bodies. So many of the Indian um, government people and many of the Ladakhis were very admiring of the fact that I and later on my team were willing to walk to remote areas and spend time there. And in fact, I did not spend many winters there. I don't know how well I would have fared. I was there in the winter and I found that quite difficult. I'm not um, particularly happy about the cold. And it was very interesting to see that the Ladakhis themselves didn't seem to mind the cold at all. If anything, they would complain about the heat. And for me, the heat in the summer was never a problem because it was always cool in the shade. It was just hot out in the sun. Um, but yes, I did have some quite um, wild and, and dangerous experiences. Mm. Okay, so everything I've heard is true. <laughs> um, <laughs> not quite, not quite, I'm sure. What okay. is true, I think what is true is that I did become a legend in the sense that even in the most remote villages, people would have heard of me. And mm. that also meant it was such a wonderful thing to be everywhere I went, welcomed with open arms, because I was the first outsider in that generation to have learned the language. And so mm. that's why I became famous. Everywhere, people had heard of Helena Dolma. And whenever I went into a new remote village, people would be yeah, just so lovingly appreciative and welcome me with open arms. Uh, so it was a wonderful experience. Mm. And you actually got to live through it. I mean, you were there for many years. So you basically spent a huge amount of your own entire um, time of your life in, my, in my youth, learning. Yes. yes. And that's incredible because you also saw it at a time when when it was so untouched and there was literally nothing. So you saw it in the in the very primacy of the culture. Yeah. Well, when you say literally nothing, you see, I want to argue with that because, you know, the head of Save the Children, you know, comes in and says they have no medical care. They actually did have a medical system. You know, it was one that was a mixture of Chinese and Ayurvedic, and it had a lot to offer. There were some strange practices, which to this day I'm not certain about whether they were just totally useless or not, but I've actually learned surprising things, even about the use of a hot iron for many illnesses, which seemed very draconian. But um, there really was very, very uh, little illness. People would get bad colds, they would get aches and pains in their legs and from carrying things and so on. So as they aged, they would complain about their knees there was very little illness, and I think probably almost no cancer. I had a doctor 
friend of mine do research there and he didn't find traces of it in the villages in the early years. Later mm. on, of course, it came, but it almost certainly came with the carcinogens that are created through modern industrial processes in agriculture, in food production, processing, um, of course, all the fossil fuel uh, fumes, the pesticides, all of these things actually create a lot of illnesses. So people were remarkably healthy. And, and um, so when we say there was nothing, you see, there was also the most amazing beauty. I, I could literally stand on a mountaintop and point across a whole vast landscape after about 10 years of being there every year for about half of the year and point to every single thing that was ugly was new. Everything that was ugly was new. So it was so beautiful, the clearest, cleanest air, the, um, yeah, you know, the sparkling water, the amazing contrast between the green fields and these mountains that were, you know, colored, rainbow colors of turquoise and purple and orange. Um, yeah. So there was a lot of beauty, there was a lot of humor, there was a lot of theater, a lot of singing, dancing, festivals, you know, every main occasion, birth, marriage and death, we'd have these huge gatherings and celebrations. And it was just magical to be in a world that was so unaffected by the time pressures and the stress of the modern world. Mm. Yeah. I feel like some of the parts are still intact, especially with the rituals, as you mentioned, about the onset of nature or the seasons. And uh, like you mentioned, there's literally a ritual or a festival or a sense of celebration that's there. And I feel like some of the remote parts are still carrying all the cultures intact. And that I find is the beauty of, you know, finding places that are really remote, that globalization does not really enter there. It has its own sense of uh, problems, uh, of course, but I feel like most of the things stay intact. Um, going forward, I wanted to ask you this question about the frontier moment. With your work with ancient futures, was there any one grounding moment uh, in the entire research that you think was the moment that catalyzed a new sense of path or a new sense of inspiration for your work? Was there that one moment when you think that life was before and after, especially with your work? I think I think I actually write about that in Ancient Futures, that one catalyzing moment was certainly hearing a Western tourist for the hundredth time say, oh, what a paradise, what a pity it has to be destroyed. And then it was suddenly, you know, this awareness, I spoke the Ladakhi language fluently and I knew that none of my Ladakhi friends would have an idea why people were saying that. So I realized there was this huge information gap and this total lack of awareness among the Ladakhis why Westerners would be so enthralled with the beauty and the health and the sort of wealth of Ladakh. And why they would say it's going to be destroyed. So I decided then, I think that was part of what made me become more activist and made me want to create better communication between the Westerners and the Ladakhis so that the Ladakhis really could learn about many of the problems that we had in the West and understand that so many of the internal problems in the West 
which were not visible. You know, epidemics of depression, epidemics of cancer, loneliness, um, the um, pollution and the reason why people were starting to absolutely want organic food, all of these, uh, both the environmental costs and the social, spiritual, psychological costs in the West weren't recognized in Ladakh. And I wanted to try to share that so that Ladakhis could meet the modern world with open eyes and decide what, what they really wanted to take from the West and what they didn't. So how was how do you think was the reaction or the response of the Ladakhi community to the Western world? Was it open hand? Was it uh, was it a naive or a positive approach, or was it more like an apprehension? No, it was very open, open armed, and I reflected later on the fact that in South America, where my husband had spent a lot of time, my husband had joined me after I had been out in Ladakh for three years. He had spent a couple of years in South America, and many of my other friends, uh, you know, were, were travelers and had the opportunity to contrast indigenous cultures in South America with the Ladakhis. And I think what we understood was that in South America, in most parts, people had been pressured by the Spanish and the colonizers for hundreds of years. And so they had to sort of retreat and they'd created a certain protective uh, shield where they did not engage so openly and lovingly with outsiders because they had been, of course, exposed to forces that were colonizing and very clearly mm -hmm. destructive. Whereas in the Ladakhi period, they, they had been protected by the mountains and then their political position uh, until such a late date that in the mid-70s, when the West suddenly went pouring into Ladakh in the form of tourism, but also development, the Ladakhis were generally welcoming it with open arms. They were not apprehensive generally. Mm -hmm. um, and what I saw was that young Ladakhis developed almost overnight the impression that the West and Westerners were superior. Mm. And I saw that that led to a loss of self-esteem and realized how tragic that was and how wrong it was. Um, so a lot of my work has been about that psychology around the sense of identity, a cultural identity as opposed to an individual identity. But I also realized that the more I lived with the Ladakhis, the traditional Ladakhis, I realized that they were genuinely more individual than Westerners. They were able to be themselves freely in an uninhibited way. And the more I studied that, the more I realized it was because they had the benefit of growing up in extended families where every mother had five to 10 caretakers for every child. That meant from moment to moment, the child would be in different arms, but always in somebody's arms, on somebody's body, always included in and part of the movement, the body movement, the music, the dancing, whatever was happening, the child was there included and held. And, uh, 
And as you grow up, surrounded by living role models, whether it's the older brother or the neighbor or the 80-year-old uncle or aunt, you develop a, a realistic sense of identity. What happened in the West was isolation, little nuclear families cut off from each other and with screens to inform them of who their role models should be. And it's mm. a disastrous recipe. It leads to the loss of self-esteem and the fear of being yourself because you feel you're never good enough. So the, you know, when you say that, that there was nothing in Ladakh, I would say I found the greatest mental, spiritual health and self-esteem of any place in the world. And that's a really important thing for us to reflect on and think of, particularly in today's world, where social media are now continuing to do what the media did before, which is to separate people behind screens of perfection that make you feel never really love for who you really are. Mm. Totally. Um, it's so interesting that you bring up the subject of individualism because it's, 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 it's a conversation that really goes on along, especially me growing up in New Delhi most of my life. I've seen individualism in a very different form and shape, especially me coming from a family which was also as big as like we had like seven people in the family and it was always... Yeah. So entrenchingly, like there was always someone to talk to. There was always someone and diversity was appreciated instead of this homogenized idea of what's good and bad. There were not two alternatives. There were different ways. There were different shades of the color. And it's very interesting because I have I have well traveled and I've lived in the United States for a while. I've done my research in different countries. And it's just it's just very hard to explain to a Western uh, Western identity or other idea of identity, especially about the Indian identity, that there is a very different form of freedom in that kind of individualism. Even the definition of individualism in especially United States of America versus in India, it's so different. Like be unique is a lot more like, there's a lot more appreciation of being unique in that part of the world versus in, in US where, where, where it's branded to be unique, but everybody kind of acts like the same person which is on the screen as you mentioned and that is so refreshingly new it's the first time someone from the outside actually stated that so that's very refreshing for me good good well i hope there'll be more people like you who remember that and and i also can tell you that you didn't have the same degree of self of relaxed self-acceptance that the Ladakhis did because what you had already undergone in India were huge pressures from the colonizers and these div div divisions that, you know, particularly divided Muslims and Buddhists. And, and so you already had been subjected to pressures that made it less. And I'm, I'm only saying this in order for people to want to learn more about the basics of how could we get back to something that would inspire such deep health and self-esteem in young people and in all of us, you know, because it's, as I see it, I'm too, I grew up in Sweden in a nuclear family and with very little contact with my grandparents. And, and I remember that still for me, many of the significant others in our lives 
had to do with the fact that we led relatively stable lives. We stayed in the same town for most of my childhood, whereas in a place like America, the corporate system has imposed more and more mobility, more and more frag fragmentation, fracturing, people moving all the time in search of meaningful employment. And that's, of course, affected India as well, but not quite as badly. So we need to understand uh, the need for children to ideally grow up with that stability. You could choose to move, but ideally you'd be moving as a nomadic tribe. You would have you know, a whole a whole group, an intergenerational group. Very, very important that you have the different generations together to create a healthy identity. For sure. So did you, did you grow up with your grandparents living in your house? No, I was the youngest of the siblings. So my grandparents had already passed away, but I had my aunties, of course. I had my masis and mamas, which were like my cousins and my mother's sister. So it was very... Um, is way together and I feel like the whole idea of individualism more like a separate unit happened later for me I particularly I'm stating for myself it was a good refreshing take because it kind of built me to be more independent and be able to take bigger decisions about my life and take more I'll say bolder decisions which has enabled me the path for what I do but my mother is Himalayan she's from the uh, she's from Afghanistan and she migrated to India so she has pure Himalayan culture, cultural values, which is a lot more wilderness, a lot more indigenous values that are rooted to the earth. And my father is, is from the plains. And it was quite refreshing to have a genes of both people, one who was a little more capitalistic driven and the other who was completely into nature. So I think I'd say that I had best of all the worlds. And I, I frequent to Himalayas because it kind of, it's very unexplainable for me, particularly because it's just, it's just hard to explain to someone who has not lived or been to the Himalayas but there's something in the air there's something in the air that brings you back to the roots and there's something in the air that gets you spirited um and it's i would say it's it's all over like i've spent my time in bhutan i spent my time in the himachal and i i want to ask you if there was there was this this unexplainable magic that you found every time you landed in ladakh then you know that you were home and something kind of like rests back to your body well, I think for me, Ladakh and Bhutan and most of Nepal are very different, actually. And Bhutan and Nepal reminded me more of the Alps. But of course, Ladakh is a completely magical, sort of otherworldly landscape. And I guess I, I felt, you know, just so inspired by and, and drawn to that landscape in particular. And the uh, the clarity of the air, the, the the dryness too. I actually thrive in that more than in the the green and humid environments. And I felt like so many women who came to Ladakh that that I had come home. And after many years, also I came to realize that was partly because it was a culture that had allowed for the more feminine nurturing um, ways of being so that the men had maintained more of the feminine energies and the women had more, if you like, empowered strength. So um, you also felt completely safe as a woman, which, um, you know, I had not realized before that even in Sweden, I had never felt that degree of 
I'm I'm safe. I'm I'm at home. I'm in a in a more feminine culture. I would say the best way mm. to describe. It. And mm. I did feel that too, uh, to some extent in Bhutan and Ladakh as well, but not to the same extent. Um, and I would say probably Bhutan was was a slightly more hierarchical in terms of male female relations, but I never got as intimately involved in Bhutan. I only worked there over a five year period. Know, going back for shorter visits. Kind of like as we talk more, I believe there's a certain form of rebellion on the way you've chosen your path, the way you talk about it, the way you eloquently and with, with absolute subtlety, there is a sense of rebellion, a generative rebellion to the path that you've chosen. And it's, it's probably given a very new form to the meaning of life for you, the politics and the economics that you, you, you propose. Uh, could you talk a little bit more about this generative rebellion that you carry in your work and your identity? Well, I I would say that to the extent I carry it in my identity, it's entirely because of Ladakh and also reinforced by experiences in many other cultures and having lived in America, having lived in, grown up in Sweden and with very, very broad experience in the world, I feel very affirmed and strong in my commitment to promoting a, a rebellion, a peaceful revolution of non-compliance with the dominant consumer culture, with uh, the imposition of a global monoculture that is anti-life, that cannot respect diversity. And we're talking about a structural inability when you're talking about allowing giant monopolistic banks and corporations to shape the direction of food and farming, to shape our cities, to shape our architecture, our music, our media discourse. You're talking about a structural inability to pay attention to the richness of diversity, to the specifics of place, the specifics of the moment, the specifics of every, every moment in every place on this planet, the uniqueness of that and the need to love and respect that richness. That is the, the revolution that I'm encouraging and that is going to require both inner personal worldview change and even to some extent reprogramming our brains because we've been educated into an over left brain intellectual path where we do not respect experiential knowledge. We actually don't respect holistic knowledge. We've been trained to listen to the experts as the holders of the real truth. And this is a very, very dangerous shift that's happened. And it's been exaggerated, particularly in the last 40 years, along with the path whereby global banks and corporations have gained more and more power over our governments, and yeah, there's a, a big picture there, which I gained particularly from being isolated from the, essentially the brainwashing that was going on in the West, where people had woken up to the fact that for personal psychological reasons, for environmental reasons, for democratic reasons, they weren't happy with the way that society was moving. And there was a rejection of this centralizing, urbanizing, corporate path 
that was emerging with the help of fossil fuels. So there was a demand for decentralized renewable energy, for organic agriculture, for abandoning this monolithic fossil fuel-based urbanizing path. And it was accompanied by the wisdom of Rachel Carson, who was a scientist who had realized that narrow specialized knowledge is what allowed for the creation of things like DDT and other lethal substances to be used liberally sprinkled on the earth to get rid of a few insects that we might not like. But she was spelling out the frightening costs of how that could affect bird life on the other side of the country or the world even. And so there was a demand for more holistic knowledge and for decentralization. And that was coming particularly from the West, from this sort of environmental movement that was questioning the dominant path. But as big business got involved with this, they were more and more funding and framing both the discourse or discussions in academia, in the media, in science, and continue to take us in a path of ever larger scale, concentrated, centralized, commercializing interest, and as I say, structurally linked to monoculture. So I am definitely part of, you know, a growing number of voices questioning the dominant path of techno economic mm. global capitalism. Um, but I think it's very important to go beyond left and right, to see as fundamental the need to respect diversity. And when we frame things that way and we start looking at, well, what would cultural diversity look like? And why is it we need cultural diversity to maintain biological diversity? How can we accomplish that in the modern world? That's a very complex and interesting discussion and i i do think we need more of it and i think people like you are very important players in that i think um what what i see is that no traditional culture is now going to decide to cut itself off and go back to wearing only traditional clothes only eating traditional food you know, put some kind of wall around itself and say, we're going to stay exactly the same. Life never stays exactly the same. There's always growth. There's always change. The question is, are we changing in harmony with life itself? And more importantly, maybe, maybe not, I shouldn't say more importantly, but I say more importantly for us personally, are we changing in a way that makes us flourish, that makes us happy and healthy, want to be alive, want to be part of this great story of evolution. So we have a lot of indicators now to say that the dominant consumer path definitely does not contribute to well-being, either human or ecological. And so what does contribute to that? That's a very important study there is a project that started with National Geographic called Blue Zones. That's an interesting part of this um, and very close to the sort of thing that we promote um, because they 
they started with a project to look around the world at where people live to be more than 100. And of course, as it turned out, in those pockets of society around the world where people live to be more than 100, you also had quite a lot of happiness. You had mm. quite happy, content people. And it turns out that very common principle there was intergenerational community, a strong community fabric. And to what extent that is spelled out, I don't know, but I can more or less guarantee that part of it was also a healthier environment, a healthier ecological environment. Fewer pesticides, fewer chemicals, plastics that have been born of the needs of commercial entities to make more profit, not the needs of societies to grow and flourish and evolve. And we are now in a very dangerous situation where we must we must start looking at our choice as we move forward. Yes, for sure. I, I, I believe that there is also a subculture that's kind of building up, and I don't know how strong the subculture builds up, especially especially considering, as you mentioned, there was an alternative world of holistic education happening back in the day, especially in the 70s. And I think the pandemic is an important reminder for the entire planet to actually see through our life choices and see through how we live, how we exist, what we consume and how much we consume. So uh, I think it's a refreshing start for few people who want to take it more individually than as collectively. Uh, but do you propose do you propose any other mediums, especially especially since the machine has never been stronger? That's my personal take. I think the machine, especially with the algorithms, with Internet, the machine has never been stronger. So uh, how do you suggest as an individual or a collective level for people to navigate through and find the sanity uh, of being aligned to the land? Well, first of all, I think, again, really important is to remember the alignment is also with our deeper innate human needs and a fundamental need, more primary than the need for connection to nature is to others. Every child that's born primarily needs that holding, that connection to people. So the intergenerational community fabric is fundamental. And that intergenerational is so important because in those structures you have far less competition it's a natural structure it's how we evolved because of course young people need the help of older people of course there are deep fundamental reasons why for most of our time on earth we developed who we are through intergenerational collaborative structures so um this equally important, of course, for our survival is connection to nature and respect for nature and respect for the principles of nature, for the diversity of nature. So for individuals right now to navigate the current climate and to step back and recognize that the machine, basically meaning a techno-economic commercial system that has taken hold of our governments, taken hold of our worldviews, shaped identity, shaped structures that naturally encourage enormous pressures on us. We are all rushing faster and faster in a system where we have to, to just struggle to stay in place, just to pay the rent, just to have a roof over yeah. our head. We are running after the dollar 
faster and faster. So I think the first step that we encourage is don't even look at that machine before you make it a priority to connect. Connect with some like-minded people. And with the goal, you know, what we're providing for people are tools that we say, we'd like you to connect with a group. Could be just two or three other people. And the goal is to try to understand what is the best path for me personally and for the planet seeking well-being for me well-being for other people well-being for the planet well-being what does that look like so that's the framing that we invite people to join us on a journey where you know Ladakh helped me to step back outside of the western culture to actually be able to see it as a culture, not as the only way that humans have ever existed, not as some kind of inevitable evolutionary techno path where companies just naturally get bigger and bigger. It's not been natural ever. It started with force. It started with slavery, with genocide. It's only because of the force that a system was set up that allowed the unnatural creation of global businesses that were able to take control of national governments and of identities and cultures. So once we step back and do that as a group, so we are looking at it, we're reading some things, we're looking at some films, we're thinking this machine-like structure over, one thing that happens once you shed light on it, you realize that in many ways it's fragile. The only thing that's keeping it afloat is our ignorance. It is held together by us because we believe in it, because we go along with it. And you know, suddenly deciding as an individual, well, I don't really believe in it, I don't believe in capitalism, I don't believe in the laws that have been created, to suit capitalism, it's not an easy task. And the dismantling or changing of this system is not going to happen either with a group of two or three of you. But what we're inviting people to look at is how we can also start <clears throat> a creative journey where we actually start building the foundations of a different world. And there... I do have even my own husband and close male friends especially, they feel I overplay the incredible wealth and joy that can be created when right now inside this machine we link up to life, we link up to other people and to nature in a conscious way and I'm calling that localization or the economics of happiness, or I'm also calling it an ancient futures cultural turning, a cultural turning that is happening across the world where people have tasted the loneliness, the unhappiness that comes from being completely isolated from other people, from sitting in a high-rise tower without any life around you alone, with a screen, that leads both to unhappiness and to violence and aggression 
Um, and very often the violence and aggression comes from taking antidepressants, very dangerous link, and a lot of suicide also because of antidepressants. So why are people so depressed? How is it that waking up to this message that, that I'm uh, articulating now, which has to do with reconnection, collaborative reconnection with others, perhaps starting with that small group of people you identify through work or through your colleagues, ideally looking for a group that's ideally as intergenerational as possible, but that may not always be so easy, but some like-minded people who are ready to think about this question seriously and who want to find a better way to live. So the reconnection that you can start being part of is this worldwide localization movement, which consists of hundreds upon hundreds of millions of people, because we're talking about traditional farmers, for instance, who are still part of a more natural ecosystem, both in terms of the land, but even the economic ecosystem, where they're providing more for their own region or their own people not for global corporations. They've not yet been destroyed to become vast monocultures to suit the corporate machine stranglehold. So there are hundreds of millions of farmers there in Via Campesina who are trying to raise awareness about the need to help them survive. But they also represent part of this huge part of humanity still living in a different way, not yet sold out to the dictates of this corporate machine. And, and essentially, they're operating in a more human-scale way, more respectful of the diversity of ecosystems, of cultures, of individuals. And there's a turning in the West in particular, with more westernized people also in the Mumbai's and Beijing's of this world, where people having tasted the anonymity, the loneliness, the time pressures, the stress, the meaningless work where you don't even know what the consequences of what you do. So having tasted that, people hunger for something more meaningful. So they're turning towards the local. They're turning towards things like farming, towards things like supporting small-scale renewable energy, community projects, um, all kinds of healing projects both in terms of personal physical health, mental health, and ecosystem health. And it's about working in harmony with nature, with the natural, the more natural way of doing things. So as people start both opening their eyes to how much is happening in that way, as they start themselves choosing to be part of that, more energy, more life returns. My advice to people is generally don't take some giant leap out of being a wage slave in the dominant system and think that you're going to go off to the middle of nowhere and grow your own food and be outside of the system. A more strategic way is probably to keep a foot in the door of the dominant system, earn some money from it, pull some money out of it while working with and developing the lifeboats of new foundations, 
of this new direction towards localization. Very long-winded. I maybe should have let you speak more. Not at all. It was it was perfectly eloquently spoken. I think that I got a few different points and personally also, especially talking about what's in there for you and how can you lead, especially connecting with the people. And I think there was like a guide map of some kinds if you if you yes, kind of compress and structure. So thank you for sharing that. And that brings us to the fin finale of the show. And that's this recurring motive of the Possibility Podcast, where each speaker envisions and dreams of a better world, the world that they would like to see in 100 years from now. So how would Helena Norberg Hodge would like to see the world in 2121? Well, I would love to see a world where at this dramatic turning point, I feel we need to recognize that this pandemic has put us into a very clear position where we need to quite consciously choose between these two forks in the road, one of them anti-life and one of them pro-life. And the again, the globalizing corporate, techno-economic, top-down, consumer monoculture path that is also fundamentally urbanizing that path is deadly. It's killing us. It's killing the planet. And I, I really hope that people will be willing to step back and to recognize the truth of what I'm saying there. But it will not be done as effectively if they don't simultaneously look at that other life-affirming path and recognize that once they become awake to it and they become aware of the miracle of life, the joy of life, the profound spiritual truth of our connection to it, our inevitable connection to it. As long as we're alive, we are spiritually deeply connected to the rest of life and the well-being of the rest of life. And that means other people and means every plant, every animal is about our well-being. Once we tune into that, we can also regain a more conscious uh, path and appreciation that makes us come alive and makes us choose a life worth living, a life full of the joys and miracles of life. So we do have now a worldwide localization movement. As I said, the way I'm defining it is it's a path towards more local community building, local connection to the living environment around you. It's moving away from a picture. <clears throat> Maybe the images of the two paths I'd like to present is the anti-life path has you looking at a screen of two human hands holding the globe. Now that, <clears throat> sorry, I'll do it all again. <clears throat> Maybe the best way to see a visual image for these two divergent paths is to understand that the one which was actually brought in by big business at the time of Rio, the world's biggest environmental meeting in Rio, that was a meeting funded and organized by global corporations. And the main leader of that was someone named Maurice Strong, whom I knew personally who was a good person, who was seriously concerned about the environment because his wife, who was my friend, had woken him up to the damage that was being done to the environment. But 
what that conference symbolized was a path that was beginning to take us away from looking at the root causes of our destructive path. And we were now being led in the hands of corporations towards a type of environmentalism that has proven to take us away from real solutions and actually even worse than that, encouraged us on a path that's even more destructive. Now that path is best symbolized by having a photo of two hands holding the entire globe in its two hands. That's us looking at a screen, talking about being one humanity, one world where we all love every bit of creation, even the forests and the mushrooms and the trees that we may never have seen. We're being told we should love just as much as the tree that we planted in our own garden. Well, that path is fundamentally based to the, one of the biggest problems we have, which is that we've been led away from a respect for experiential knowledge, from the embodied experience of life, of life that we can touch and smell and actually nourish and be nourished by. So the other part that I would like to present to you would have an image of the earth holding us in her hands. It's a feminine earth, it's a mother Gaia who nourishes us, who gives birth to us, and who nourished and gave birth to a multitude of cultures, of races, of languages, of diversity in response to the diverse climates, the, the different forests, the mountains, the waters. That diversity has brought forth a diversity of ways of being adapted to Mother Gaia. So in, in the next hundred years, I'm hoping that even, sorry, just a minute. So hi. So, Thank you. Have a great day. Thank you. The, the dream is that at this crucial turning point that we're facing today with this huge fork in the road, one of them a techno-economic, global, corporate, consumer culture, top-down, undemocratic. On the other hand, there's the emergence of more and more voices calling for a genuinely democratic, diversified, decentralized path forward, one that understands that to respect and to genuinely regenerate life, we must move towards a slowing down, a scaling down, a deep respect for not only biological diversity, but for the cultural diversity that has come out of what Mother Gaia created, this life fabric where humans were part of it. The way forward, as I see, that it is likely to happen, is beginning to happen, is that we're getting more and more conversation between the most urbanized, distanced people of the planet who are coming back towards the earth, making a huge cultural turning towards respect for the indigenous, respect for the feminine, respect for wild nature. In every enterprise, they're putting the word eco or natural in front of it, like everything from eco-theology to eco-linguistics, 
ecological agriculture, ecological architecture, every single activity and enterprise now having an alternative path towards respect for nature, which means respect for diversity, means respect for the uniqueness of different people and cultures. What will happen is that as the dialogue between those people that are quite consciously rejecting the deadliness of an urban consumer culture, have deeper dialogue with the peoples of the earth that are still about half of humanity, who are more land-based, more community-based, more traditional. Those people at this stage today are quite vulnerable because they have been led to believe that the life in the city is always going to be better. We need that global dialogue that we in Local Futures are trying to encourage, that dialogue where people can learn about the realities of the lonely life in the high-rise building in the, in, the, in the city that's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So 100 years from now, that deep dialogue between the people of the earth, between civic society groups, instead of a few global leaders who are actually not our leaders, they are posturing as representatives of Sweden and India and America, but they're actually representing global capital. They're listening to the voices of money from above, money created out of thin air. So it's actually money without any real power. That money has only a few individuals behind it now. So the government leaders who are now at this moment playing a theater need to come down to earth and need to be held accountable to us, the voter. And that process will happen. Inevitably, it will happen. What, what I don't know is how much suffering we may still face before the 100-year mark, where by that time, the clarity of where the real power lies, where the real wealth lies, will have become exceedingly clear. No one will anymore be banking on money as the real wealth. No one would be silly enough to blindly think that the water and the soil have less power than some paper money or some electronic signals. It's this confusion between the real world and this abstract fake world, and particularly the money world, that is keeping a, a really an empty hot air balloon, a sort of emperor's clothes going. A hundred years from now, that will no longer be possible. Every single tree, every single thing that lives by that time will be cherished and recognized as the real wealth. And so will the diversity that arises of groups of people adapting to different climates in different places but almost certainly we will keep alive forms of communication that will be a bit speedier than what traditional people had. There will be a need for that speedier communication to prevent the rise of forces that would abuse people's rights to that more ecological, genuinely healthy and happy way of life. But they, in 100 years, cities will be much smaller already in COVID. 
that started happening. And it's been mainly because of the realization that it's not particularly healthy to be piled on top of one another. But once we really wake up to the amount of abstract, you know, Confucian and fake climate change solutions that have been foisted on us, we'll see, of course, we want to move towards cities that really, you know, don't exceed probably about a million people because you want to have a relationship between all those people who live in the city and the natural wild nature around them. People want to have a relationship with genuinely healthy agriculture, which is not going to be energy intensive, high rise, AI dominated agriculture. Really healthy farms will have will be built on the farms that we can see already today, quite small, highly diversified, very job rich, and people working together. And I have to say, the number of people I see leaving their computer-based jobs to join the local food movement, uh, there's no doubt which people are happier and healthier. The thing that will be overcome by hundred years from now is that no one will anymore be subsidizing and deregulating giant monocultures. On the contrary, what will be supported and the regulations will be shifted to do exactly the opposite, to support highly diversified, job-rich food production. And food production includes, you know, forestry and fisheries all of it providing, you know, all the food, the building materials, the fiber that we need to food, you know, to feed, clothe, and house ourselves. So there, there'll be um, a planet that where human beings, human labor, human eyes and intelligence will have figured out how to heal the planet while increasing productivity genuine productivity because people are no longer pulled into producing wealth in the form of electronic signals and paper. They are now employed in generating genuine wealth and that all you know comes from the natural world. So for me, even the journey to get to the 100-year mark is very exciting because I'm engaged with people who are demonstrating in small pockets, but all over the world, that on any given piece of land, if you diversify, and ideally as fully as possible, so you would have animals that provide fertilizer, labor, protein, you would have you know, vegetables and fruits, you'd have bushes, you have trees, you have this mixed production system, you can produce vastly more out of any bit of land anywhere in the world. Diversity will always be more productive than monoculture. Once people have really woken up to that and we have shifted taxes, subsidies and regulations to support that genuine wealth creation and stop talking about what's more productive in terms of how many dollars it produces, which is a completely misleading indicator once we have made that leap, we will be on the fast track to heal the planet and society. 
Wow, thank you so much, Helena Norbrook. How to actually have this amazing wisdom conversation and your intelligence and your amazing research in Ladakh. It was truly insightful. I will take a few hours to process this conversation, but it was so amazing to finally get to talk to you and share it with us, the listeners. Well, thank you. Thank you for doing this and for helping to get the word out.